Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans. And if you are visiting with us uh, today, uh, we have been studying uh, this great letter uh, by the Apostle Paul, his magnum opus, if you will, uh, for the last uh, year or two now. And uh, we finally arrived to Romans chapter 9. And for those of you that... uh, think that we are going through Romans at a painfully slow pace. Um, I just uh, found out this week that the old Puritan pastor, preacher, Thomas Manton, preached 48 sermons on Romans chapter 8. Today is sermon number 42 of the entire book of Romans so far, since we started. Um, So hopefully, uh, if you're having a hard time with the pace that we're going at, you can just be thankful that you weren't a part of Thomas Manton's congregation, because he preached more sermons in one chapter than I have in eight, all right? So, um, but we are going to look at the next chapter here, and this is a significant transition in this letter. And if you're familiar at all with um, Romans, you know that this is a um, uh, kind of a significant shift in in Paul's line of uh, thought here. But uh, let's just read together Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Father, thank you for the privilege we have of opening up your words Sunday after Sunday and learning more and more about you and what you would have us to be, how we can be more like Christ. And Lord, as we come to this new section in the book of Romans, I confess, Father, that this is way beyond my experience. What Paul said here, I honestly can't relate to his burden for the loss that he expressed here. But I pray, Lord, that by your spirit, nonetheless, that we would all be brought under conviction this morning, that you would help us to grasp a little bit of what Paul was saying here and to grow a little bit more in our passion for the lost. Lord, that our hearts would grieve even as your heart grieves for those that reject Christ. And so, Lord, would you um, use this message to stir us up and to make us more like you, more like Paul, and uh, ultimately more like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, throughout the history of the church, God has raised up outstanding soul winners whose hearts have been filled with an intense all-consuming burden for the lost. John Knox, the Scottish reformer, said this, quote, give me Scotland or I'll die. George Whitfield, the great preacher during the Second Great Awakening, said this, quote, oh Lord, give me souls or take my soul. David Brainerd, the missionary to the colonial Uh, the American Indians in the colonial states, said this, quote, I dream of lost souls. I care not what sufferings I undergo as long as I see souls saved. 
Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers who was a mighty soul winner in his own right, said this, quote, my whole soul has agonized over men. Every nerve of my body has been strained and I could have swept my very being out of my eyes and carried my whole frame away in a flood of tears if I could but just win souls. He went on and said this, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, said this, quote, some people want to live within the sound of chapel bells, but I want to run a mission a yard from the gates of hell. D.L. Moody, the American evangelist, said this, I see the world as a sinking ship. People are trapped, destined for doom. God gave me a lifeboat and said, Moody, save all you can. And using that similar imagery of people drowning, Keith Green, who was a revivalist in his day, back in the 70s, this musician impassioned for Christ and lost people, wrote a song called Asleep in the Light. Some of you may be familiar with it. The lyrics go like this. Do you see? Do you see all the people sinking down? Don't you care? Don't you care? Are you going to let them drown? How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. He told you to speak, but you keep holding it in. Oh, can't you see it's such sin? While these are compelling statements, none are as compelling or as radical as the statement Paul made here in the opening verses of Romans chapter 9. He said, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren and my kinsmen according to the flesh. What a burden to reach the lost Paul had. What, 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 would, what would compel Paul to, to say such a thing as he did here? Well, to answer that question, we need to pull back for just a moment and assess where we are in the flow of our study of this letter that Paul wrote to the believers in Rome. And in this letter, uh, we said this from the, the beginning, Paul set out to provide the clearest and most comprehensive explanation of God's plan of salvation ever penned. And uh, some of you still have the little outline I gave you at the beginning, a little roadmap for Romans. I encourage you to keep it in the front of Romans, Romans chapter one in the front of your Bible. This would be a good time to pull that back out. But you could break down Paul's letter into two big parts, uh, chapters 1 through 11 are the gospel of God explained, chapters 12 through 16 is the gospel of God applied, so there's a, a doctrinal section followed by a practical section, and in the first half, or the first part of the letter, chapters 1 through 11, after a brief introduction, Paul begins to uh, unpack the gospel, and he talks about, first of all, condemnation. And how we lack the righteousness that we need to be in a right relationship with God. And then he talks about justification and how God grants us the gift of righteousness. He gives us what we don't have. And uh, that's verse, chapters 3 through 5. And then he goes, after talking about justification, he goes to the subject of sanctification, or which is the result of righteousness. In other words, what, is that, what does our life look like uh, now that we have the righteousness of Christ, we've been declared righteous or, or, or right before God. And we just got done looking at that section, that great section, chapter 6, 7, and 8, all about how we've been liberated from sin, and yet we still are frustrated with uh, indwelling sin. Uh, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul used his own example 
of his ongoing struggle with indwelling sin, uh, but then we also learned in chapter 8 about the mortification of sin, that by the Spirit we can put to death the deeds of the body, and that ultimately nothing will separate us from God's love. Our salvation is secure. And then there's a final section of this first portion of the letter, this doctrinal portion, and that is chapters 9, 10, and 11. And uh, we're calling that a clarification. So we go from condemnation, justification, sanctification, to now a clarification. And this is where Paul describes the scope of righteousness. In other words, who does all this apply to? And, and specifically, does this apply to the Jews? Does this apply to the nation of Israel? Another way to outline Romans, this is another outline I've used in the past, is to break it up into three sections. Uh, Chapters 1 through 8 are the doctrinal section. Uh, Chapters 9 through 11 are the dispensational section. And then uh, chapters 12 through 16 are the directional section. And so I like that outline because it really sets apart chapters 9, 10, and 11. There's something very unique, something very special uh, for, uh, 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 about these three chapters. And whatever you choose to do with the outline of this book, however you choose to outline it, you do need to grapple with what in the world is going on in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Why now? Why here? Does Paul say what he says? At first glance, uh, it might seem like some irrelevant rabbit trail focused on the past, present, and future of the nation of Israel. And in fact, there are some people when they read through the book of Romans, and in fact, there's actually some preachers when they teach through the book of Romans, that they skip from Romans chapter 8, verse 39, to Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Because chapters 9, 10, 11 doesn't seem very practical, doesn't seem very relevant. Uh, In fact, it's very controversial. And if you're, if, you, if you're not familiar with what we're going to be studying here, particularly in Romans chapter 9, um, just bring your seatbelt every Sunday, okay? Because there's some pretty radical stuff that Paul covers here, very controversial subjects and doctrines that we're going we're gonna to be looking at. And, and by the way, to, to just jump from chapter 8 to chapter 12 um, would have been very natural for Paul to do that if he had wanted to um, because there's a very natural and smooth transition from the doctrinal section, chapters 1 through 8, to the practical section, chapters 12 through 16. And, and it, you wouldn't even miss a beat. I mean, uh, the, the flow of the argument that Paul was making here would seem unbroken without, even without this apparent digression uh, in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Well, we have to remember something, that Paul was, uh, didn't just sit down to write this letter. He was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit was directing him to write exactly what he wanted to write, when he wanted to write it, where he wanted to write it. And so these chapters obviously serve an important role in the overall description of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And that's what Paul's been talking about. And so rather than viewing this as merely a parenthesis in God's flow of thought that has little or no connection to the rest of the letter or little or no application to those of us living in an almost exclusively Gentile context here, there's not a whole bunch of Jews sitting around or Israelites sitting around here this morning. Uh, I would say predominantly, probably 99.9% of us are Gentiles, uh, not of Jewish origin, and so what does this have to do with us? Well, we need to see that this is a critical clarification of the gospel of God, the good news of salvation, and it relates not just to the Jews, but it also relates to us as Gentiles. In fact, we're going to see that chapters 9, 10, and 11 are actually the climax to the doctrinal section of this letter and are therefore very important and very relevant. In fact, turn over to chapter 11 and look at how this section ends. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. And I'm I'm front-loading this, okay? 
because we're going to get into this. We're going to be in somewhere in the weeds in Romans 9, 10, and 11. We're going to be going, what in the world are we doing here? And how do we get out of here? I want to get to the, the fun section. Let's get to chapter 12, right? We, we, and I'm, so I'm going to front load this thing by showing you what is the, the result of what Paul says here in chapters 9, 10, 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For he, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And you thought the end of Romans 8 was good. That that was the climax. Well, that was a, in, in some ways, that was a, 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 a teaser. We, we were at the fireworks show, and we, we thought that was the finale, the grand finale. You ever been there? You've been at the fireworks show, and all of a sudden it starts going off. All it's going off all over. You're like, oh, this is it, the big finale. Settle in. This is it. And then there's a kind of a pause, a lull, and you're thinking, okay, that was it, and you're starting to you know, collect the blankets and get your chairs. And all of a sudden, boom, it just goes off again. And, and oh, this was the finale. They were just teasing us there. They had some, some, some leftover explosives and they're going to send them off. This is what's happening here. This is really the grand finale of the doctrinal section here. And so all that to say, whatever Paul was intending to get across in these three I'll just say it, strange chapters. It should leave us praising and glorifying God. And if they don't, if this is not our response after studying through these three chapters, then we've missed Paul's point somehow. Because this is how he responded. It fired him up. It got him worshiping. It got him praising the Lord unlike any time before in this letter. And so what are these chapters all about then if, it was, if it's to result in such jubilant praise? Well, simply stated, I would say maybe this way, that Paul wanted to make clear where the nation of Israel and the Jews fit into God's overall plan of salvation. Let me say that again. I think Paul was simply wanting to clarify or to make clear where the nation of Israel and the Jews fit into God's overall plan of salvation. And this needed to be clarified at this point for a number of reasons. And, and, and if you've been with us through our study of chapters one through eight, you'll, you'll already be picking up on why this is important, what Paul's about to say. Because if all that Paul was saying was true up to this point, that this glorious gospel that he was describing, well, something's off. So something seems inconsistent if you're a Jew. If, if Paul's gospel was indeed for the Jews first and then also to the Gentiles, as Paul claimed, right? Ephesians, or excuse me, uh, chapters 1, verse 16, chapter 2, verse 9 that the gospel is for, to the Jews first and then the Gentiles, well then why are the majority of the Jews rejecting the gospel? Well, why were the churches in Rome, these house churches that he was writing this letter to, made up predominantly of Gentile converts? Well, where were all the Jewish converts? Well, weren't the Jews God's chosen people? Had that changed? Seems like you're down on the Jews, Paul, and you're all about the Gentiles. And again, if, Paul, if what Paul said was true, that, that people are not saved by keeping the law and they can't earn their own righteousness by following all the rules and the regulations and the, the, the traditions and the rituals of Judaism, then, then what are we to make of all that? All the things that God had commanded the, the Israelites to practice, are, are they null and void now? And not just the practices, are they null and void, but, but what about all the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament? If all the, the practices have been done away with, then what about the promises? Was God done with Israel? Had he abandoned Israel? Had Israel been supplanted or replaced by 
the church? Is the church the new Israel? Paul did seem to apply language to the church that was used in the Old Testament to describe the nation of Israel. And if you're a Gentile here, if God had broken his promises to the Jews, then how can Paul guarantee in no uncertain terms that God would always be faithful to keep his promises to Christians? If Israel lost their preferred status, then so could we. I mean, how are we to explain the apostasy of the the nation of Israel? Paul had just got done saying that nothing, absolutely nothing can ever separate those who have chosen, who have been chosen by God. They can't be separated from God's love. Our, our eternal salvation is secure in Christ. We learn that in chapter 8, verses 29 to 39. Well, if that's true, what, what happened to God's chosen people, Israel? Why does it look like they've been separated from God's love? They were cut off from God's love. And so you see the very character of God was at stake here. If God was not faithful to keep his promises to Israel, then how do we know he'll be faithful to keep his promises to us as new covenant believers? And so here in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul set out to defend the character of God. It's what theologians call a theodicy. A theodicy. That that Paul was defending the character of God by showing that his dealings with Israel in the past, at present, and in the future actually magnified God's attributes. Namely, his justice, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, his wisdom, and his love. And that's why when Paul gets done, he says, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. He's exalting God for all that he is and all that he does. What's more, Paul wanted his readers, including us, to know that the gospel that he preached was in keeping with the Old Testament promises of God. This was nothing new that he had made up. This was not some novelty that he had designed or devised in his own head. It was simply a continuation of God's plan of salvation that was established in the Old Testament. And that's why interesting, it's interesting to note here that, that in chapters 9 through 11, it's one of the most concentrated sections in the New Testament of quotes from the Old Testament. On average, every third verse in these chapters, these three chapters, is a quote from the Old Testament. In other words, Paul is wanting to help us see that, hey, what he's been saying is connected to the Old Testament and to the nation of Israel. So Paul's purpose here was to confirm the validity of the gospel, but even more importantly, to affirm the faithfulness of God that God knows what he's doing. And he hasn't changed his plan. He's working it out. And, uh, and he, so he, t- he talks about God's plan here for the Jews and the Gentiles and how they all fit together in God's ultimate big picture plan of salvation. Now, he, he launched into this section here in verses one through five by expressing his great sorrow over the fact that the vast majority of his fellow Jews had indeed rejected Christ as their Messiah or as their Lord and Savior. And so what I want us to see this morning from this text is is three aspects of the kind of burden that every one of us should have for lost people. We're going to go to school, if you will, on... Paul's burden for the lost. And so we're going to see, first of all, the sincerity of Paul's burden for the lost in verse 1. 
We're going to see the intensity of Paul's burden for the lost in verses 2 and 3. And then the rationality of Paul's burden for the lost, or the rationale behind it, or the reason behind Paul's burden for the lost in verses 4 through 5. Now, while this is part of the doctrinal section of the book of Romans, this is not a doctrinal text. This is a very emotional text. And so therefore, I don't think the Spirit of God intended us to respond intellectually to this passage as much as he wants us to respond emotionally to this passage. And that might be a little weird. That might might be weirding some of you out because you like coming to Lakeside Bible Church because you like doctrine and you like to think. You're cerebral. And feelings, yeah, those aren't that important. They're kind of over there. Let's, I don't want to get into the feeling part of things because that's, you know, that could go places we don't want to go. So let's just stick with doctrine. Well, I think the Spirit of God intended us to feel something here. Not, not so much to know something in this text, but to feel something. And so that might get us all out of our comfort zone this morning. So what are we to feel? Well, first of all, the sincerity of Paul's burden for the lost. Verse one, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. And you're like, all right, Paul, all right already. What, what, why are you having to convince us that you're not lying? And so Paul expressed his deep devotion to the Jewish people by using this threefold oath to prove that what he was about to say was true. See, Paul knew that in the minds of his fellow Jews, he was their worst enemy. As the apostle of the Gentiles, he was a traitor. As one commentator put it, the Judas of Judaism, who was out to destroy the sacred religion of the Jews. And what he had already taught here in the book of Romans may have given Jews the impression that Paul was anti-Semitic. That he, that he hated Jews. And consequently, that's why Jews hated him. And dogged his steps wherever he went and stirred up mobs against him and sent false teachers behind him to subvert his teaching in the churches he planted. And eventually more than 40 extremely zealous Jews banded together to kill him. Acts 23 verse 12, they talk about they wouldn't eat or sleep until he was dead. Imagine that. Slight distraction to the work of the ministry. You got a bounty on your head, 40 guys out after you, trying to, trying, to, trying to nab you somewhere, find you when you're alone, grab you, put the thing over your head, never see you again, right? Paul, Paul said this in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four when he was describing all the things that he endured for the cause of Christ. He said this, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. 40 was supposed to kill you. So they, they didn't just try to kill him once. They tried to kill him five, at least five times by beating him to death, whipping him to death. He said, I've been in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen. In other words, not only did I have to watch out for bad guys, robbers, Um, wild animals as I was journeying all over Asia Minor, I also had to kind of keep looking over my shoulder to make sure I wouldn't be being pursued by one of my fellow Jews who was out to kill me. And what's so beautiful about this passage is despite the Jews' intense hatred of him, Paul had nothing but intense love and concern for them. That hatred was not reciprocal. 
And so Paul knew. He knew the dynamic. And so he would have to assure the Jews that his love for them was sincere, that he wasn't just saying it. He wasn't just um, patronizing them, trying to make it sound like he really cared for them when he really didn't. So he wanted to assure them that he was sincere. And so that's why he said, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. In other words, I call two members of the Trinity to be my witness, Christ and the Holy Spirit. I ain't lying. They, they can defend me on this. This is, this is really what's in my heart towards you. But I think also Paul knew that what, he's, what, he, what he was about to say would sound so outlandish, so unbelievable, and that's why he felt the need to overemphasize, if you will, the veracity of his claim. He didn't just say, I'm telling the truth. He added some more things to that, right? Because he knew people were going to react when he said what he's about to say. There's no way, Paul. That's not, that's not true. You're exaggerating. And this may have been a hyperbole to make a point, granted that. But let's look at the intensity of Paul's burden for the loss. So we see the sincerity of Paul's burden for the loss. Now let's look at the intensity of Paul's burden for the loss. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. Here it is, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. So this heavy-heartedness that, that, that Paul felt towards his fellow Jews was all-consuming. It was unrelenting. It never let up. It was always there. He always felt it. He carried it with him wherever he went. He experienced constant pain and anguish in his heart due to the fact that most Israelites rejected Christ despite Israel's glorious calling. And then he makes one of the most shocking statements in the Bible. Verse three. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren and my kinsmen according to the flesh. For I wish that I myself were accursed. In the Greek language, that's the word anathema, which we translate straight into the English as that, anathema. In, in um, all the church, all the church documents um, of the Catholic church, they use this word often. That if anybody believes this, let them be anathema. If anyone doesn't believe this, let them be anathema. This is actually still used in the Catholic church today. This was the strongest curse in the Greek language. It literally means to be eternally damned, to be destroyed in hell. That's what Paul meant when he said, for I could wish that I myself were accursed. For I could wish that I myself were eternally damned, destroyed in hell. In other words, Paul was willing to not only give up his life, but also to forfeit eternal life in heaven in order for his fellow Jews to come to know Christ. He simply said this, I wish I could be damned so that they could be saved. I wish I could be damned so that they could be saved. Now, not only have I never said that, I've never even thought that, and I surely have never felt that burden for the lost. And this is the, one of the challenges of being a preacher. It's, this, this part's the easy part. 
the, the, the preaching part is the easy part. It's the living it out part. That's the hard part. The, the practice what you preach, you've heard that before, right? And hopefully every preacher takes that seriously, not just to get up and say a bunch of spiritual things and then go out and live however you want, but trying to live up to what you're teaching. That's the challenge of being a pastor. And uh, most Sundays when I come and I open up God's word, I can see some, by the grace of God, some semblance of what's going on in that passage being worked out in my life. And while I need to excel still more in most everything we talk about here, I came to this text and go, that's non-existent in my life. Where's that in my life? Like, I have outpunted my coverage on this one, okay? Like, that's, I mean, again, the goal is to, to be putting into practice the things that you're learning, and I'm like, man, I got a long way to go to put this one into practice. And maybe you feel the same way. But notice what Paul said. I, I wish that I myself were cursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brother and my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul's burden for the salvation of his countrymen was so enormous that he would readily have been cut off from Christ himself if that, if that would somehow result in them coming to know Christ as their Messiah. An image that came to my mind, albeit a, not a great illustration, it falls so far short of this, but imagine a, an astronaut out in space and in order to save his endangered comrades, he's floating out there attached by some cord, some line, and he cuts that lifeline to the spacecraft in order to save his comrades knowing that he's going to drift off and be doomed to die into outer darkness of space. This was the kind of selfless, sacrificial heart that Paul had towards lost people. And he knew, he knew that the exchange that he was suggesting was impossible in light of what he had just written about the eternal security of believers. You, you can't be separated from Christ Nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And yet even so, I think this was a genuine expression of his deep love for his fellow Jews. John 15, 13. Greater love has no man than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Paul's not the only one who said something like this in the scriptures. If you remember back in Exodus chapter 32, Moses said something similar when uh, he was up on Mount Sinai communing with God and taking a little more time than the Israelites expected or preferred. And so they decided, hey, well, I guess, guess uh, we lost Moses. He probably got consumed up there. And uh, who's going to be our God now? And let's make this golden calf. And so God told Moses, hey, Moses, you need to head back down. We got a problem in the camp. And, uh, and so, of course, Moses came down with the Ten Commandments and saw that carousing going on and smashed the Ten Commandments on the ground. And, but he served as the intercessor, the mediator between God and the people. And so what did he do? As any good mediator, he interceded for the Israelites. And he prayed for them and he pleaded with God to spare them from judging them that they deserve for making the golden calf and worshiping the golden calf. And this is what he said, Exodus 32, 32. But now, if you will, God, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. In other words, don't kill them, kill me in their place. A type of Christ, potentially, 
Someone dying in the place of another? You can't help but see this dramatic change in Paul's mood from the end of chapter 8 to here at the beginning of chapter 9. And somewhere in the white space there between chapter 8 and chapter 9, Paul's emotions swung from the highest mountain peak to the lowest valley. He went from jubilant celebration regarding his own salvation to sad lamentation regarding the rejection of the gospel by other people. And based on Paul's own example here, I think that Paul didn't want us just to sit here as believers and rejoice in the assurance of our salvation, which we should be doing, and that's what his whole point was for chapter 8 and particularly those last verses 31 through 39, that we should be rejoicing in the assurance of our salvation. But at the same time, he wanted us also to grieve over those who have still not repented of their sin and placed their faith in Christ. And so we live in this tension as believers, or at least should, of this this jubilant celebration and sad lamentation. It's just like, Almost a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, if you will. It's like we got these two contradictory emotions going on in us at all times. Why? Because we're surrounded at all times by people who will perish in hell for all eternity unless they hear and embrace the gospel. And how can they hear and embrace the gospel unless we share it with them? So while it's good and right for us to sit here and just wallow in the grace and the mercy of God on Sunday mornings as we gather together and we worship God and we're reminded of the gospel. But it can't stop here. It's got to go out of here as we grieve for lost people. And we faithfully share with lost people. Paul's going to say in the middle of this section, Romans chapter 10, Verse 14, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. And so Paul expressed not only the sincerity of his burden for the lost, but the intensity of his burden for the lost. And then finally, he shares the rationality of his burden for the lost in verses four and five. And what grieved Paul the most about his fellow Jews is that they had not benefited from the glorious privileges and advantages that they had as God's people of of everybody on the planet who should have embraced the Messiah. It was the people of Israel. And yet they missed it. Even though they had these, all these spiritual blessings which should have prepared them for the Messiah. And so Paul just listed here uh, nine spiritual blessings which belong to the people of Israel. He says in verse four, who are Israelites? I mean, that's, that's saying something. When you say, I'm an Israelite, I'm a, I'm a Jew, that's saying something. It means you are, you are part of the chosen people of God. You're, you're the chosen ones, the Jews. That God chose the nation of Israel out of all the other nations to be his own possession, Deuteronomy chapter 7. To whom belongs the adoption as sons. God sovereignly picked the Jews and adopted them to be his children and delivered them out of bondage to Egypt. He said, then the glory. You, You guys had the glory. I mean, you had God's glorious presence dwelling among you in the form of a a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day which went before you and miraculously protected you and defended you and guided you during the wilderness wandering and settled over the tabernacle whenever you set up camp and came down and sat over there and eventually filled the temple. You had the covenants, he says. And we know God made several covenants to, to... the, the nation of Israel through Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, all these covenants. And these were not mutual agreements that Paul or that uh, God made between two parties. These were unilateral agreements 
between God and himself. In other words, they were promises that God would be faithful to fulfill regardless of what Israel did or didn't do. They were given the law. They were the recipients of God's revelation, which was spoken by his own voice, written with his own finger even. And the temple service, the beautiful, elaborate set of rituals and regulations prescribed for the priests and the sacrificial system and the, the festivals, all for the purpose of worshiping and, and, and serving God in the tabernacle and in the temple. And the promises, he says, which are in addition to the, to the covenants, God made countless other promises to the Jews, particularly in regards to the coming of the Messiah. So I think that this is, a pro, this is a reference to the messianic prophecies or promises of this coming prophet, priest, and king who would come for every tribe and tongue and nation. Um, you also had the fathers. You had the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob who became the leaders of the, the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And last but not least, notice he says, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh? The crowning spiritual blessing that God bestowed on the nation of Israel was Christ himself. The long-awaited Messiah was born an Israelite. Jesus was a Jew. And his genealogy can be traced all the way back to Abraham, according to Matthew's gospel. And so what's Paul's point here? Despite the incredible privilege and advantage that the nation of Israel had in being the channel, the very channel through which the Savior of the world came, and despite all the many ways that God prepared them and educated them to easily recognize the Messiah and to receive the Messiah when he finally arrived, they murdered him. And John said it this way, John 1.11, he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. By the way, don't miss the reference to the deity of Christ here and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. So Paul was emphasizing in the previous phrase the, 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 the human descent of Christ and so he quickly follows it up with a clear affirmation of the deity of Christ, that he calls Christ God, which he also did in Titus 2.13, where he said, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So this just added to the, the tragedy of this whole situation that that in Paul's mind, the most grievous, lamentable thing of all was that the Jews rejected and crucified God himself. They killed their God. And so Paul was so burdened, so grieved, so sorrowful for his own people. And whilst Paul's burden for the lost is, is huge, no question, far surpasses my burden for the lost, that's for sure. But it didn't surpass Jesus' burden for the lost. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, Jesus is described in this way, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. That word compassion is the Greek word splachna, which talks about the, the word that they would use for bowels, the person's innards. That, that, that he felt in his gut this compassion, this burden for them. Why? Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Literally, Jesus saw lost people as sheep heading for the slaughter. And so when he approached Jerusalem, 
to be arrested and crucified by the people that he had come to save. Luke 19, 41, it says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He wept over it. When's the last time you or I wept for lost people? A lost child. A lost parent. A lost brother or sister. Neighbor, coworker, friend, classmate. Why do I cry at the end of sports movies? When the team wins and they're playing the music and that's about the only time I cry is at the end of sports movies. I don't know why. True stories about some great victory or even a great loss sometimes is a great story, right? I've never experienced that same emotion when it comes to lost people that I know. Paul wished that he could be accursed in the place of unbelieving Jews so that they could be saved. Guess what? Jesus was accursed in the place of every Jew, every Gentile who would repent and believe so they would be saved. Who are some people that you have a burden for? Locally, internationally? Are you burdened enough to pray for them, to financially support a missionary who might reach them with the gospel or if they're here to build a relationship with them yourself to strike up a gospel conversation with them? What are you willing to sacrifice or forfeit in order for them to be saved? Are you willing to sacrifice a relationship or your reputation, your job, a few bucks? And even your life, if it came to that, in order for them to become a Christian. You know, I'm always amazed at funerals because I'm convinced that eternity will reveal how many people got saved through the deaths of a beloved family member or friend. And they got saved through their death. Because that's why I always at this funeral, and I'm always preaching the gospel at funerals. I don't think there's a more fertile soil for the gospel than a funeral. And how sometimes God uses the death of a devoted believer to bring their unsaved family members or friends or coworkers to Christ. So the question is, how do we develop a bigger burden for the lost. I mean, are we just to go away and feel bad because we, we just can't relate to Paul? Well, that's good for Paul, but I, I, don't know what, I don't know what planet he's from, but I'm not on that same planet. He's next level, man. I, I'm not even there. Well, what are some things that we could potentially do to develop a bigger burden for the lost? I was thinking about this, and I didn't want to have us leave without having some practical application here. Well, I think, first of all, we need to pray. We need to pray that God would give us a bigger burden for the lost. That's the prayer that God loves to answer right there, by the way. You don't think God will answer that prayer? He will answer that prayer. God, give me a greater burden for lost people. Help me to see what you see, God. Help me to feel what you feel when you look down and look at all these lost people here on this earth. Number two, I think we should pursue relationships with lost people. Pursue relationships with lost people. I think one of the challenges for a church like ours, a Bible church, is that we, if we're not careful, become a fortress. We're a fortress. And what is a fortress for? It exists to protect us rather than to prepare and equip us to be the lighthouse, right, that God called the church to be. And rather than isolating ourselves 
within the four walls of our church, we need to interact with unbelievers. We need to stop worrying about our own protection. We need to protect ourselves and our families. We need to be penetrating the community with the gospel. And so pursue relationship with lost people. And I believe that will increase your burden for, for them when you spend time with them. It'll, it'll grieve you when you hear what they say and when you learn what they really think and believe and how they're living their life and the, the consequences that they're experiencing. It will just grieve you. It'll make you sad for them and hopefully make you pray for them more and want to reach them even more with the truth. But if you don't know anything about your unsaved neighbors or coworkers because you don't interact with them, well, you're not going to have a burden for them. But as you get to know them and befriend them and start having gospel conversations with them, it's going to increase your burden for them. I would also say hang around people who have a burden for the lost. There's a principle in Proverbs you become like the people you hang around. Proverbs 13, 20. He was wise, or he who walks with the wise will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. Don't associate with an angry man or you'll, you'll become angry too. That's a positive and negative, right? Hey, you become like the people you hang around. So if you want to become more burdened for the lost, more passionate for lost souls, then, then hang around people that have a burden for the lost. Listen to their sermons. Read their books. I'm talking about people like David Brainerd, and George Whitfield, who George Whitfield, they said, would actually cry when he was preaching because he was so burdened for the people that were listening that they would understand the gospel, that he, was, he would be weeping as he, as, he, as he preached. Read books by John Piper and David Platt, Paul Washer, Ray Comfort. I mean, these are guys in our generation, man. They just, they're just passionate souls they have an extreme burden for lost people. So read their books. Watch their, listen to their podcasts. Rub shoulders with them in any way you can. I did that this last couple weeks. I was rubbing shoulders with a guy named Mark Dever. Never met the guy personally, but I got to know him through this little book he wrote called The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. And uh, in the forward, C.J. Mahaney says that um, hanging around Mark Dever was really convicting and really challenging and inspired him to be more evangelistic. That uh, Mark was, Mark's the kind of guy that goes to the same restaurants even though he doesn't, may not care for the food, uh, goes to the same establishments, the same place, right, just so he can build relationships, establish relationships, maintain relationships for the purpose of sharing the gospel with people. But let me just read quickly what I was encouraged by, how I was challenged. Cultivate evangelism. Cultivating evangelism in the local church is one of the pastor's most important responsibilities and difficult challenges, perhaps the most difficult. What do I mean by cultural evangelism? I mean an expectation that Christians will share the gospel with others, talk about doing that, pray about it, and regularly plan and work together to help each other evangelize. We want evangelism to be normal in our own lives and in our churches. We want to see a renewed commitment to and joy in the great privilege we have of sharing the good news of Christ with the lost and dying world around us. This good news of Jesus Christ is crucial. Until you recognize that, I can say nothing helpful to you about evangelism. It will be no more for you than an unpleasant duty or an occasional impulse when the message of the cross captures your heart, then your tongue, stammering, halting, insulting, awkward, sarcastic, and imperfect as it may be, won't be far behind, as Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so he concludes, again, addressing pastors here. We must lead by example. As pastors, we are called to lead by our teaching, but also by our actions. Certainly, we pastors sacrifice personal opportunities to do evangelism when we work full-time in ministry. We are, in a sense, willing to be pulled behind the scenes, behind the front lines, in order to equip others. We realize the front line of the contest is represented by the members of the local congregation after they leave church on Sunday. It is then, throughout the week, 
that the church presses in on the kingdom of darkness as believers live out their callings around hundreds or even thousands of non-Christians each week. It is our task as pastors to lead all believers in accepting, embracing, and using the opportunities that God richly gives them. We want our congregations to be marked by a culture of evangelism. Does this sound familiar, by the way? We read another book about this earlier this year. In order to do that, we're going to have to watch how many nights we encourage our members to be doing some program at church. We must give our members time to develop friendships with non-Christians. Share stories about evangelism with your friends. Ask them to recount recent evangelistic experiences. That's why we do that little everyday evangelism thing. We're trying to get people up here and saying, hey, tell us a recent opportunity you had. Why? Is that to show off? To say, hey, look at me? You know, No, it's to say, hey, let's, let's grow in our excitement about sharing the gospel. Let's pray for these people that we're interacting with corporately. Let's pray for them. He said, read books that remind you of the priority of evangelism in your own life and ministry. Well, I applied that sentence, right? I read a book that was helpful for me. And listen, I've been a Christian for a long time. Um, ever since I was a kid. And I'm so thankful that I've been in a context where wherever I've been, I've been discipled along the way. I was never just, you know, hey, led to Christ and then left to make it unfend for myself. I've always been in a dynamic environment where there was this people discipling me, mentoring me, and there was four things that, that I don't care who this discipler was, no matter what season it was in my spiritual life or how old I was, there was four things that they were constantly drumming into my heart and life, and that was read my Bible, pray, go to church, and share the gospel. Those are the four basics of the Christian life, the four fundamentals of the Christian life. And so really sharing the gospel, that fourth one, should be as normal and natural as reading your Bible, praying, coming to church. I mean, this wasn't like, oh no, I gotta go to church this morning. I'm not sure I can do it. It's kind of scary. No, it was just natural. This is what we do on Sunday mornings as believers. We come together and it's just normal, it's natural. Hopefully tomorrow morning you wake up, normal, natural thing to pull out your Bible and just read something and then to turn that into a time of prayer. It's very normal, natural. We wanna see that normal, naturalness apply to our evangelism, both individually and as, as a church. So as you know, we are about to kick off our grow groups. You see all the tables up here. Um, this is the, the, the rush week, if you will, or the next two weeks, or rush week, and we, we, we want you all to sign up for a grow group and get plugged in you know, for this next year, uh, September to May. And uh, this, is, this is our shepherding structure. This is how we make sure you're getting cared for, uh, communicated with, uh, counseled, um, just, we, we just want you to get plugged in and uh, be a part of our, our, our groups. And so typically we, we, we've just let the leaders just do whatever they want with their groups. We trust our leaders. Um, they know what their group needs. And so a lot of the groups just do sermon application. Um, a few of them do some Bible studies from time to time, read another book. But we felt that it would be timely for us as we kick off this fall semester um, to all come together as grow groups and, and do this, do, do all be studying the same thing. We used to do that years ago. Everybody was studying through Corinthians or Ephesians or Hebrews, and we all had the same Bible study guides, and we were all doing it together. So no matter what small group you were in, grow group you are in, you, you had something to talk about with everybody else in the church because you were all going through the same thing. And so we thought it'd be good to bring that back just for the next couple of months, or for those of you that meet every other week, it might be the whole semester, fall semester, but uh, we found a, a Bible study um, called uh, Evangelism, Reaching the Lost. It's a Bible study guide, like an inductive Bible study guide like we're used to using. And uh, that's gonna be our, our little book for grow groups. And so all the grow groups are gonna be doing that for the next, uh, like I said, six weeks. It's a six-week study, so however long it could take six weeks, could take 12 weeks, depending on how often you meet. Those books are gonna be available in the Resource Center. Uh, I think they're $6.00. Hopefully you can buy, if you're a couple, buy two and you both kind of work through them during the week and come back and come to Grow Group and discuss it and your leader will kind of guide you through that discussion. But what is it going to do? It's just going to put this element of evangelism, this, this fundamental basic of evangelism on the front burner of our church, front burner of our hearts, our lives, our Grow Groups. And as we continue to try to develop this culture of evangelism in our church, why not use the vehicle of Grow Groups, we thought, right, to kind of encourage that even more. So I'm going to invite the grow group leaders uh, to come right now. I wanted to 
have more time to give them a formal introduction, but if you are uh, one of our Grow Group leaders, come and find your little uh, sign there and your clipboard. And uh, again, if, you're, if you've been coming to Lakeside, you know the drill, right? Even if you're in a Grow Group, we encourage you to come re-sign up for that group just so your leader knows, yeah, I'm still in. Uh, or this is an opportunity if you, you know, just kind of decide you don't like your grow group anymore, try another one. That's okay. You can do that. You can switch around. And uh, we let you choose which grow group you want to be in. And so, um, again, all of these guys have been, and, and gals have been leading uh, groups. Um, my wife and I, Kelly and I are jumping in. We're going to uh, add another grow group. We just felt like there was a need as our church is growing. We need more small groups. As the church gets bigger, you got to get smaller. And so we've got a sign-up sheet over there. We're going to be doing a, a grow group on Wednesday night. You've got this little sheet here in the bulletin. Um, maybe you're like, whoa, this is a lot to take in. I'm not sure where I'm going to go or which group I want to meet. Well, uh, again, if you know, come. Before you leave, just come sign in tonight, uh, this, this morning. If not, take this home and uh, pray over it this week and decide next week. These sign-up sheets will be out again next week and you'll have a chance to sign up, but we want you to get plugged in. And uh, we're really excited about how the Lord is going to use this little short study that we're going to do. And then probably by the end of the semester, we'll go back to doing whatever you're doing, sermon application, your next Bible study you wanted to do. But just for the next few weeks uh, and next few months, we want to do this together. And we're going to hope and pray that God will use it to help us to grow in our burden to reach lost people. Amen? Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage that has stirred my heart. I trust it has stirred our entire body's heart. And as we have a chance to put into practice now um, this text by saying, hey, what can I do practically um, to grow in this area in my life? Well, join a grow group and uh, study with other like-minded believers this idea of reaching the lost. And what does the Bible teach uh, about reaching lost people with the gospel? And so, Lord, would you guide and direct each individual in this room as to what grow group would be best suited for their needs right now, their stage of life and their location. And Lord, I pray you just continue to give these leaders wisdom and skill as they seek to shepherd the flock of God among us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.